You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole for the official 350th time. I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and I am so glad that with me to celebrate 350 episodes is none other than Christy Morris. Yay! This is so exciting. It is very exciting. I I'm I'm I love that we are here, you know, I I think it's I can't believe that this show lasted this long. And, you know, honestly, before we kind of get to, to any rem- reminiscence, because I think we're going to have a little bit this this episode, so indulge us, folks. But um, I think it's only right that uh, somebody that, and many people know, I met him because of this show, uh, and I met him because we both realized we loved Star Wars, is John Mills. I'm just here because uh, you promised that you would finally settle up the tab for all of my guest appearances. I'm under the impression <laughs> I'm being paid somehow. Uh, well, uh, so Ruby's not going to charge you your bar tab, oh, which is nope, really what it comes down to. <laughs> which honestly is pretty much the GDP of several small nations. So that's fair enough. It's true. That <laughs> that's fine. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to be here, guys. I mean, it, it's it's crazy to me. Um, you know, before we get started, I, I figured, you know, we'd kind of go through a little bit the history of the show for people who didn't know. And we, uh, you know, we had had a previous show that was called The Observation Lounge. Uh, and that show, it had wrapped up as the, the host had moved on and uh, decided uh, myself that I wanted the opportunity to talk more than just Star Trek here on the network. And so approached uh, Christopher Jones, good friend and and uh, creator of the network, you know, would it be okay if I kind of redesigned that show a little bit and gave it a new name? Uh, and one that kind of alluded to Star Trek, but we weren't going to talk about Star Trek on the show. And, and, and of course, this the wonderful show Enterprise gave us the opportunity to be able to do that because they had this great bar called the 602 Club. And so that would be our illusion, the fact that we were on a kind of a network that had been devoted for Star Trek for so long uh, and gave us the opportunity to do all these other things, you know, and, and I can't believe it that... We've been going since, um, I think, 2012. I think our first episode was actually about uh, the trailer, possibly, for um, The Force Awakens. Hmm. And um, and <laughs> I, 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 we were also talking about, I think, the first episode, for sure, I, I'm pretty sure, it was Rebels as well. Hmm. And um, I think that episode is called Crying Man Tears if I remember correctly. Uh, so, yeah, it's been a long 
journey. It's been a long road getting from there to here, as they would say on Enterprise, but welcome. We're glad to be here at the 350th episode. And uh, of course, you know where you could find us. We're all over the place where you get your podcast. Please uh, do us a favor. If you want this show to continue to grow, go over to Apple Podcasts, give us a star rating and review, help people find the show. You know what? You know where you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and all those places. So make sure you're checking us out there. But um, I think it's time to get to tonight's show. I don't want to keep people like, oh, this is a big reminiscent show. How boring is that? All right, we'll do that no. at the end. We'll do that at the end. Uh, but, um, John, you had an idea that we should cover a movie uh, called Logan's Run. Uh, and this is a movie straight from the early 70s there. And um, I, just before we even got to anything, I wanted to ask you what brought this film to mind when I was kind of like probing a little bit for ideas from you. I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, most likely, it's the fact that I didn't watch Logan's Run until relatively uh, in recent years. I'd always heard reference to it. I knew what it was about. There were some Simpsons jokes about Logan's Run, so mm-hmm. I knew how certain things worked. Um, and I'd always heard it referred to as a like one of those seminal science fiction classics. And so it had always intrigued mm-hmm. me, and I think probably it came up uh, as included at no fee, no extra fee on Amazon Prime, and that is the surefire nice. way to get me to watch anything. I mean, I that's you, you know, we were talking uh, before, uh, you know, before we turned on the mics about how I uh, have a penchant for watching bad movies, and I blame Amazon Prime for that because it throws things yes. into my. <laughs> Into my feed, and I'm like, how bad could it be? Turns out the answer, more often than not, is very bad. But uh, Logan's Terrible. Run, yeah. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> oh, boy, the stories I could tell. Uh, but no, yeah. I, and so it, it's one of those things where um, Logan's Run, I think, is, it, it, is in that position of being like, uh, like Soylent Green, like the Omega Man. Uh, like mm-hmm. Planet of the Apes, it's it belongs to that era of late sixties to mid seventies, pre Star Wars dystopic uh, dystopian sci fi uh, that was really a hallmark of that time period before Star Wars came in and gave everything a great bold great bold injection of hope uh, to everything, and so that's uh you know so th- I think it it's just probably an interesting movie to talk about from that perspective. Well, and very similar to another movie that I believe you were also on here to review with us, THX 1138. That's true. Yes. This. Yes. Yes. And Same that, time that period. Is, mm-hmm. And in this, uh, in this, in this discussion, I think probably THX will come up more than once. So mm-hmm. I definitely uh, thought of that as, as I was, you know, thinking about uh, this film and watching the film. And so, uh, I thought it was interesting that, you know, John, you mentioned one of the reasons why uh, and, and and a popularity for this film in the sense of uh, w- why they wanted to adapt this from the book in the first place. And I thought it was really interesting that like many studios and this this is actually what happens with Star Trek in general uh, and why they get a film is because of the success of 2001 and Planet of the Apes, every studio is kind of looking for their own sci-fi 
franchise and or film that they can put out there. And Logan's Run is a popular book at the time. And they decide, well, this is the way to go. Um, And it's a film that kind of ends up in development hell for a long while until they're finally able to kind of come to the premise that they want from the book. And I wanted to ask you guys about this because they only take two main premises from the book. And that is that everyone must die at a set age. And that Logan and his companion Jessica are going to escape by being chased by another Sandman named Francis. Um, and some of the story changes they made included the fact that they raised the, the you know, uh, last day for somebody from 21 to 30. Uh, and then they actually introduced the idea of carousel for eliminated 30-year-olds. So in the adaptation, do you think that they made wise choices for adapting this book and things that actually ended up adding to the story rather than detracting from the story? So I have to say, I think that the biggest disconnect for me with this movie has always been the carousel thing. I get that they needed some way to solve the problem that would also be believable for people that, you know, basically would be the same kind of people to join a cult. Um, you need you need to convince them of some method of belief of how then people die and where they go um, so that they don't ask questions. But they never really mm-hmm. explain what's happening other than everyone goes in a room, stands in a circle and, you know, somehow they float to the top and explode. And you don't know whether they were, quote unquote, reborn or renewed or if they just died. <laughs> Yeah, I um I haven't read the book. I definitely want to now after after rewatching. I I think that probably Carousel, I, I agree with you, Christy. It's it doesn't really make a lot of sense except to give the characters somewhere to go mm-hmm. and to maybe dazzle the audience a little bit, to give them some sort of visceral thrill to introduce the idea of a cult like situation, but it's really kind of clunky and it actually undercuts i think this idea of the age limit of the society because if you're going to have something like carousel that should at least introduce the idea of uh, a random nature to everything you know like like a lottery Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to introduce something like Carousel, I think it would have worked better if they'd had that idea of a lottery that it's it's not the cap of age. It's maybe an age range and you're chosen randomly. And so you get this this sort of thrill of seeing various ages and nobody knows who's going to die in the Carousel. Like Carousel says mm-hmm. to me that like they're all going to go in the circle and... Some of them will go, some of them won't. And that was my impression. I remember the first time I watched it, when everybody went up, I was like, oh, okay, everyone's going. I thought it was going to be random, and it was just going to be like a test of their their belief carried them up, and that's why they got chosen to be renewed. But instead, it just becomes sort of like a hollow spectacle at the center of the story. Yeah. Oh, you know what it reminds me of? The claw from Toy Story. <laughs> they're like i've been chosen (laughs) fitting very fitting very fitting (laughs) that's that's very funny actually (laughs) no i I think 
So with uh, one of the things I think they did that makes that is a good decision, I think, was the idea of going from 21 to 30. Yeah. And on top of that, you know, I, I do think that you have some interesting things to, to say about the idea of carousel. And I didn't necessarily take it that way because I was thinking to myself, honestly, that carousel adds that cult-like nature to what's happening as well as this element of hope for people that and and the sense of because later on in the movie you know we have logan ask francis you know have you ever seen anybody you know be reborn and he's like oh yeah of course and that it's this this psychological trick of the brain that 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 people because of their conditioning that they've been through, that they do believe that they have seen that happen in Carousel, even though they really haven't. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because of the conditioning. And so, but I, I think you do bring out a great point in that, you know, Carousel itself, one, uh, I don't know if it works as well as they want it to. And I do think that part of that has to do with the fact that they maybe should have spent just a little bit more time with some of the mythology of Carousel and of the world so that you would kind of understand um, its significance a little bit more. See, I think Carousel highlights something, though, that is is true of the whole movie and of the whole sci-fi genre from this time period in that. Uh, you know, to an earlier point, studios wanted to f- capture that audience that also went to see 2001. Mm-hmm. And 2001 is this big, true. you know, revered film. And oh my gosh, it's a true work of art from beginning to finish. Everybody loves 2001. So there's an audience for it. But I think that as you go through, and I think Logan's Run and Carousel in specific highlights this, is an example of the fact that the studio heads didn't understand what they were trying to market, what they were trying to bring to life. And it very much shows not just in the, the production design and the way that they obviously tried to cut corners and stuff like that. But as we're sitting here talking about carousel, I really think in a, from a 1980s forward, when you get people who are comfortable with science fiction in general, as a, as a genre you get and it's not just lucas it's spielberg it's zemeckis it's all of these people they understand what they have to do to to smooth these things out and make them work and make them explainable and i think that logan's run just belongs and carousel being the artifact of that to that mindset of well, we're going to make this because obviously some people want to see it, but I don't quite get it, but just put it out there for the kids mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that, so that's sort of the disconnect I think we're all picking up on. Yeah. Well, and it, the last thing I'll say about it too is you were right too, John, with like, they're kind of also then breaking their own rule that they had set up, you know, that it was supposed to be some are, you know... um, devout enough that they are chosen and some are not but then it looked like they were all chosen so they should have just handled that differently 
Yeah, well, I mean, you could have you could have had some of them rise up, and then the other ones are down there, and it's like, oh, well, bummer, you know, we got to wipe out the rest of you anyway, but you didn't get chosen for renewal, and then the it's an even bigger betrayal to find out, wait, nobody got renewed. What are you talking about? Like, mm-hmm. it, it just feels like an even bigger sort of undercut, I guess. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's a good point in the sense that the idea of that, like, who gets chosen, who doesn't get chosen, and and all of those things don't necessarily seem to make a lot of sense with what we see. Um, and I like that that both of you point out because it's, again, it's just not something that I had necessarily thought about while I was watching it. Um, but I absolutely think that it's it's a hundred percent correct. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you know. Uh, this is a time period where people are in movie studios much like today. I think this is one of those things that I find really fascinating is that not a lot has changed in the movie business over the last hundred years. You know, um, if something is, is successful, another studio immediately wants to capitalize on that type of success and find their way to do the same exact thing. And that's exactly what we get with, um, you know, Logan's run and the other, uh, you know, sci-fi franchises that have been successful at that point. So um, I I was really fascinated. And, and, and this is just more of a, a curiosity for myself because doing a little research on the movie, um, I was really shocked how many of the locations are actual locations that they they filmed in and I was surprised how many of them are in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Um they go to the Apparel Mart in Dallas uh, Market Center which I've been to. Um they they go to the Fort Worth Water Gardens which I've been to. Um they're in like a sewage disposal plant in California. I have not been to that. <laughs> um but I was just, you know, well, I mean, that's on, one that Yeah. I don't know. Uh you know, I it's just not, <laughs> it's not generally a place I would normally visit, but you know, apparently I need to. Um but I was just surprised like how many of these places that are actually out there and um that they were actually using to film to create their, you know, look and feel of this world and, and I thought that that was one of the things that, and we'll talk about it, I think, in a minute, um, there's a lot of this movie that doesn't feel real, but then in choosing a lot of these different places, there's a lot of it that does. And I think that was a really smart uh, thought for them is instead of trying to build massive sets, that they went to places that had you know, what they were looking for and use that. And I think to me, I was really glad that they did that because it works. I think they made the right choice in not um, just trying to do uh, everything themselves on a movie soundstage. Yes, but I will say that one of the things that works very much against this film is the same thing that undercuts uh, the later Apes sequels from the same time period, is that the architecture of the 1970s was such a, lack of a better term, brazen attempt to depart from the more uh, traditional norms of architecture that everybody thought that's what the future was going to look like. When I think even back then, most people could, 
admit that it was going to date things pretty severely. There's there's a reason that you can look at something and you can immediately say, ah, oh, that was made in the 70s. Like you can walk through yeah. D.C. to this day. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, cool building. Cool. Oh, 1970s. Yeah, they're going to have to redo that sometime soon. And it's it's I think it's something that works very much against the film now because of the fact that it's so rooted in the sensibilities of the time period. It's no different sure. than Bones's leisure suit when he walks off the transporter oh, yeah. in the motion oh, picture gosh. where you're like, no, yep. people will not be dressing like that. It, mm-hmm. Like people gave up on that by 1981. They're not dressing like that in the 23rd century. Zero yeah. percent chance. It's true. So, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, and, um, uh, uh, Michael York's, his bathrobish thing that he's wearing when he, dials up oh classic uh, i, I mean you're not wearing that every night uh wait no wh- uh, <laughs> i don't know a tunic yeah yeah no it does it looks like he's wearing a blanket of some sort sure yeah. snuggie I, but <laughs> oh my gosh they did predict the future i take it all back <laughs> <There you go. laughs> um yeah i i agree that you can definitely tell what era it was filmed in purely based on the architecture of the places that, that they then filmed in but I I do agree with you, Matt, as far as the practical nature of it helping the film a lot, um, you know, that I think that the areas where they did use a lot of special effects, which for the time were ahead of their time to us now also look really dated and that I prefer the practical effects of this movie to the special effects they tried to do. Um but yeah, you can definitely tell like where they they filmed at the Apparel Mart because to me it looks exactly like America's Mart here in Atlanta. If you think <laughs> about when you've been there for Dragon Con and stuff, it's very a very yeah. old dated building as well. Yep. Yeah. I you know, it's um it is funny because you you do you mentioned the 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 effects it almost seems as if they were trying to take a cue from Toho's Godzilla movies when they were doing the miniatures. Mm-hmm. And not realizing that miniatures themselves, unless you get the focus just absolutely perfectly right, are not going to work as well as you. You know, like mm-hmm. there's a real oh, yeah. art form to miniatures and we're all spoiled by the fact that, again, we're in the post Star Wars age. So we saw just the the absolute heightening of miniature craft to an art level. And this is. It it's the only way they were going to pull off something like this then, mm-hmm. and you can't help but wonder. I think if they had just stuck it in development hell for another year or two longer, they would have suddenly got a lot of tips for how to light it right and film it properly. You know, just 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 a year later, it's it's just right there on the horizon. Just hold out for a little bit longer, guys, and it's. It seems unfair, I guess, to judge it that way now, but, you know, I think it's, I think that Logan's run is a victim of the fact that it's released so close to Star Wars that Mm -hmm. even if audiences sat down in 76 and like, oh, well, that looks pretty good. And then they watch Star Wars and like, yeah, that looks like amateur hour. Like, and it's not Mm -hmm. fair. It's not fair because things were just on the cusp of being revolutionized. Well, yeah, and like Mm -hmm. when you read about the other aspects of the production of this movie, there's so many things saying it was ahead of its time and that, you know, they they did some techniques that had never been done before, sort of like George does for Star Wars. And um, so but yeah, like being then compared to Star Wars, it's it it isn't fair. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> I'm like, what was ahead of its time exactly? <laughs> it doesn't look mm-hmm. like it. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, it plays now. And part of this, I'm sure, is the fact that I watched it in like standard def instead of, you know, 4K ultra inverted double high def, whatever the latest tech is now. But mm-hmm. like it, it honestly comes off like watching a presentation from Epcot in 1967 you know it's like this is what the world of the future will look like and it's like oh, yeah. ah, you know like it just it carries a little bit of that air to it where when i go and i see uh space mountain and they have some of those dioramas set up mm-hmm. that's sort of the vibe that goes along with it which now mm-hmm. it's kind of kitschy when they were going for believable and futuristic so you mean like in the scenes mm-hmm. where they had the um the tubes with the little cars going through yes. and stuff yeah. Yeah. And then it the one other thing I wanted to call out for that that stood out to me was the shots with the um hydroelectric power supposedly toward the end. Yeah. The perspective yeah. looks really off. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes it does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it, along with the locations as you guys have I think rightly just gone right into you know, which is the the production value is that some of this really, I think, looks really good and still works. And then and some of it really doesn't. And, and I do think you're absolutely right in both calling out that it really comes down to the time period that this movie is in and leaning into the look of the time that you're in and filming to being the one in which this world rep is represented by, which is, I think always the biggest mistake and, in, in doing a kind of a futurist type film, which is try and make something else, you know, do not reach, uh, into where you are at that time period and use that as your basis for what the future is going to look like, you know? Um, and you know, I think, it's always hard to do that. I mean, you know, even Star Trek, which is always praised for the ways that it predicts the future, also has to lean into the time period that it's in, right? And it, so it's really difficult to do. I do think that this movie, on a whole, leans in too much to the time period that it's in. And, um, you know, like you said, John, just the weird robe thing, and Snuggy that he's got, mm-hmm. you know, Um Logan Snuggy, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. At least he predicted the future there, but it, it does feel very strange, and so, and it it feels like it came straight from, you know, the early seventies, um, as it does so much of the design work here, and and part of that is that they are mimicking the design work to which they are pulling from the actual locations that they're shooting in, which are also uh, very. Very much, you know, rooted in the 60s and 70s. And so um, they're they're never able to kind of push past that enough, which kind of hurts the look and the feel of the film in perpetuity. Yeah. And I think also, as long as we're going to talk about the the design work, I'm also going to feel compelled to talk about costuming. We already mentioned the Snuggie and everything, but you wind up really, it's... And this is sort of like a fine, fine line to walk sort of thing, but it's so weird that uh, Jenny Agutter, you know, the first time she appears on screen, she's basically naked. Yeah. And it, she yeah. has this very flimsy thing on. And I know that, you know, the, the 70s 
before Studio 54, you know, brought the party to a crashing halt and everything like that, before disco got out of control and all of those sorts of things, it's an offshoot of the free love thing, but it's it's really one of those it, – it, it really calls attention to itself here because of the fact that the male characters we meet are basically dressed in – futuristic costumes that aren't too far off and yeah the one runner that they catch has a uh you know his his shirt's basically open to his navel sort of thing but she walks on screen and it's like whoa hey like did your budget suddenly get cut you couldn't put like shorts on her or something like it's just not and you can mm-hmm. say oh well she had entered into the thing where she's going in the i forget what they call it where they apparently teleport each other around yeah. Uh, for for sex, Look, looking for action, yeah. But it's still one of those things where you know she, you could have put her in a robe the way he's wearing it or something like that, make it some sort of like a custom. But they obviously went for the you know the the titillation factor at the time, where it's like, oh yeah, we got a pretty girl, we'll put her in even less clothing, and it's like, ah, okay, you know. And I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not a prude. I'm not the type to really like get hung up on stuff like that. But it's just it it became noticeable. Especially because she had that outfit on like through the whole movie. And it's like, really? I mean, yeah. Even when they're running away, she couldn't wear something a little different. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think it's noticeable because of the way that she's having to then do her role in the environment. It, it doesn't, the costuming doesn't match the activity she has to do otherwise. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and like you said, like it, it is a very stark contrast of like, why aren't both the men and women more scantily clad than all the time? Or, you know, like it just doesn't yeah. seem to coincide or, or at least that if they're talking about people are just used as breeders, both male and female, that they're not, um, making the men as much of an object as they are the women. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I do think, as you both rightly pointed out, that's definitely a product of the time that this movie oh, yeah. comes out in, um, for sure. And, and just in, in general, um, you know, though that, uh, and one of the things that I, I did appreciate about that production design, um, that you didn't mention, John, was the way in which the costuming design, you know, does work very well for what they're going for in the sense that this is a society they are trying to portray a society, which is all about self-pleasure. Like, in the sense that, you know, yes, I think the men have either longer shorts or like pants on, but all of their shirts are like cut to their navels. Right. You know, and you, you know, the women even walking around when they're not on the uh, sex carousel, <laughs> mm-hmm. as we'll call it, um, are also wearing kind of very little is, you know, that it's very open and airy and, you know, so they're, they're all in this kind of, they're always ready for a good time. You know, that's, that's all they're dressed for. You know, and I think that's one of the ways in which the costuming on that side actually portrays that part really well. That this is a society that feels like that episode, I think, Justice from TNG, you know? Oh, <laughs> John? yeah, yeah, okay. I know the you one know you're talking, talking about? about. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, that, that that's basically what they're going for with this with the portrayal of the society and 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 that's the whole point of the society which is, you know, we are here for I mean, everybody's just here for a good time, you know, and not for a long here time. To, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just here for a good time, not a long yeah. time. That's great. I did want to uh Sorry, there was one other thing with the costuming that I did think was a good thing that they did, since you're mentioning that, Matt, um, was if you notice, they did give them different shades of color depending on their age group. Mm-hmm. So whatever they were wearing, mm-hmm. it was like it seemed to get lighter in shade of mm-hmm. green or red as they got older. Yeah. Or maybe yeah, vice versa. Point. I don't remember, but yeah. Yeah, I um, I okay, J- just in turn to keep going in terms of design the I and to pay a compliment because you know here I am you know hacking on this one part, but I did think that the to speak to your point about the the color coding, Christy, I did think it was interesting that we at least get to see that the the Sandman, you know, Michael York his his bathrobe is still the silver and black. Mm-hmm. So even when he's in his downtime, mm-hmm. you know what his job is. And I think that, though, speaks to another sort of uh, shortfalling of the film is that the society doesn't entirely feel like it can work in any way. And I know that part of that is, you know, their pleasures are all taken care of and the machinery takes care of all of that stuff. And that's another thing where I think it's, just a little bit too early for this to have been produced is I don't see a way for that to be. I see a bunch of people walking around, but I don't see their needs being attended to in a way that I would think would be in this Mm -hmm. highly technologically enclosed society Mm -hmm. where I would see some evidence of being served food or a robot cleaning up behind you or something like that. There's none of that apparatus in place that, speaks to what that's going to be like what keeps the machinery going what and i think that that is probably a missed opportunity is finding out especially if you're going to throw away i guess so much of the book and you you have your own thing there's an opportunity and another reason i want to read the book there has to be some sort of explanation that there is an underclass you know right who's maintaining things right who keeps the who keeps the ships running Mm-hmm. And it's there's so there's got to be some sort of outclass that doesn't get to participate in the benefits of society, yeah, but still gets point. killed at a certain age. So it's like they get the rawest possible end of the deal. Mm-hmm. Or like who decides who I, the sandmen are? You know what I mean? Who picks them right? from the group of men and mm-hmm. says, you're going to be a sandman? Yeah, that's a great question. I think question. that's a great point, John, is that we kind of in the the thought process behind the society we never really explain who and why and what very well we do see the you know I, the computer um that is in charge of everything uh that logan gets to talk to but we don't really see anything of of how that works and why it works and you know like you said i mean just just kind of thinking through like how in the world are we um 
providing for this many people? Like, how are they getting food? Mm -hmm. You know, we don't see, like, I think you're absolutely right in pointing out, like, where are they, they have, like, matter replicators or something that are providing the food for all these people? Like, how, how are we growing food? for? Are we liquefying the people that we killed, like, the Matrix and turning them into some sort of, like, like, what the heck is going on? So, like, I think there's a lot of questions that do kind of come to your mind that the film never even thinks to look at and or um, even to attempt to answer. And that is a detriment, I think, to the reality of the situation and, and the movie and the world that it's created. And, and, and specifically to then where we're like the problem of it right you know like so because that's a as we move forward that's the thing like everybody this we 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 show this to be not a good system but it would be more interesting to see even more so as to why this is not a great system other than just the fact that people are you know made to die at a at a at a younger age why is that the case? We have no idea as to why that's the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um I I think that they have one line later on where they make reference to farming or something like that and they refer to it as like a mm-hmm. barbaric way of eating or hunting or something like that. I forget what the specific line is, but I think that there's a there's just a, a disconnect. I, I, you know, I, I guess like we said earlier, I, I think that all of these sorts of things speak to the fact that there's a disconnect that the, the higher ups don't quite know what to do with material like this at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is something that will continue through science fiction for ages to come. Sure. We still get movies yep. today. that are science fiction movies where it's like, who, who was running the show here? Who, who, who greenlit this? Yeah. But, I, I mean, even to plug what you guys were just talking about on uh, Minority Report um, with uh, House Lights, oh, you know, yeah. uh, was was that the right choice, uh, especially with, you know, uh, him as director, Spielberg's director? Does know, he make a- the right choices, you know? So I think that's a really – you pointing out that this continues to happen is, is an ec- – I mean – I was just listening to you guys talk about that and and absolutely, you know, we still have that question with movies like that. You know, it's really interesting you mentioned that because yeah, and then that and to another Spielberg film, it sort of carries through to Ready Player One, where it's like, wait, oh, what? Gosh, yes. How does yes. how does any of this work? And it's mm-hmm. um Yes. It's really and another both of those are examples of being adapted from works that did take the time to explain the way that the world worked at the very least. Um so maybe it's maybe it's something having to do with sci-fi adaptations in specific that really causes some of the the disconnect there because they don't know how to juggle out you know what makes it work or something but you know I I do think that um I feel like I'm being too harsh on the movie at this point uh and it's like I I'm but I'm really sitting here and I'm I'm thinking I don't know if I am being too harsh. Like I'm thinking maybe I am, but I don't know because when we get to the point where they get to uh, the robot, mm-hmm. I I got to ask you guys, like 
what was your reaction to the robot who I think Roscoe Lee Brown was playing the robot? If, yep. I, if I'm not mistaken. In a suit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and sorry, side note too, before we get to that really quick, I just wanted to add, did you ever realize they show babies, but no children? Oh, yeah. Except for True. the one yeah. little girl that lives off in, like, the bad neighborhood. <laughs> they don't yeah. show anyone between, like, age one and age 20. That's an excellent point. I where are they? Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. Where are the kids? Yeah, where are they? They put them off in a kid-friendly area. <laughs> yeah, but you'd think they'd at least... Yeah, they should have at least mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought oh. about that. And I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, where are they? Anyway. Oh, excellent point. Yeah, but Maybe no. they're all being watched after by Roscoe Lee Brown. Yeah. In a in a <laughs> <They're frozen. laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, oh, that scene it it was bad. You're not being too harsh on that especially because at, first of all he reminded me kind of of the Tin Man. Yeah. It was yep. very clunky. Um and then trying to make it like he's sort of the overlord of the sanctuary didn't really come across and uh, it was a good reveal kind of of um you think that he's offering them things to eat and trying to give them a, a sure. warm place to sit and stuff with the coats and then realize that he's offering them other people and then decides he's gonna freeze them too like that part was a little bit creepy in a good way um but yeah it it's very confusing and also not explained well and that's why you feel that way yeah, and I mean, uh, that's one of those places, too, I think, John, where, you know, as we've been kind of talking about the, I mean, and gosh, we've talked about the production of this movie for most of the podcast, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> it doesn't normally happen here on the show, but I think it is something that's so much a part of this film. Um, and we haven't, I mean, we've touched a little bit on the fact that the model work is terrible, but um, yeah, it, the the robot here it is something that it is so bad looking. Um, it makes Lost in Space look like a hundred and fifty million dollar film. I mean, that that's that's how bad the work is here with the, the that they put in. I like I I don't know what happened. Did they was this an afterthought? Is this a reshoot? But like, it looks really really bad. Well, I I think that um, it's probably overly ambitious design work that they just kept saying oh well we can we can get there we can get there we've got time we've got time and like the rock monster in star trek 5 when the time came somebody saw it and yeah said, you know could be whereas shatner says we can't show this in the movie they say well it's what we got mm-hmm. let's go for it and you mentioned lost in space this this scene while still weird and not terribly well explained and has all of these sorts of problems you change the design of our robot in that moment to a more robbie the robot sort of thing with the transistors and the weird 1950s michelin man arms and stuff like that and the scene actually gets better immediately because you're not staring at this tinfoil human saying who are you kidding well why is that on screen why like yep. it, it really is and i i i don't want to be I don't want to be mean, but it's like you look at that. And I, if I were a producer of the movie and I saw that in the dailies, I'd say, well, we're going to take a bath on this movie. 
we're done. Nobody's going to come see this. They're, they're going to hear about this robot. They're going to be like, it's a joke. It's a joke. And But, of course, the thing is, Logan's Run doesn't become a joke. It becomes a, 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 a you know, a, a reference point for culture in the, in the 1970s mm-hmm. and, and remains so. So, you know, who knows? You can so never predict where it's going to go. So basically for all our complaining, it's still people can overlook certain things. Right. They can. And that's, I guess, that does speak to, I guess, the themes, you know, that sort of brave new world sort of thing has always worked for people with sci-fi. That sort of fear that we're going to get into this overly technocratic society that where all of the decisions are taken away from us and we're all, I mean, all of the adults in this world are essentially children. Mm-hmm. Just go off and play. Just have fun. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about anything. Just fulfill your need, your your needs and and base desires, and never try to better yourselves. And then, just when yeah. it's time to die, we'll just take care of you. And it's, it, yeah. I, I mean, you you could read so much stuff about infantilization of culture, the emphasis on the material and physical pleasure, and at the expense of you know thinking and philosophy and advancement and you know, true social benefit and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's the backbone that does carry, carry it through despite all of those problems. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I'm glad that you kind of went there, John, because I do think that to me, that's where the movie really comes to life is in the thematic issues. And and especially with this idea, I think of, of control, which we were kind of coming down to in, in, the way in which the the society is controlled uh, by the the people um, uh, in charge, whoever that is, and, and that's something we don't learn. We don't learn as to why this happened or any of those things. But you know, if if we are looking for a template for how to control a society, I think this movie gives it to you. And 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 there's a few different ways. One is which you know, Chrissy, you touched on this is that we see babies, right? But there are no parents. You're raised by the system. From the moment that you're an infant, you're raised by a system. Mm-hmm. So you have no connection to anyone to other than the system itself. So you have no reason to, to question it, of course, because that's, that's all you know. Um, because of that, there's no questioning of the status quo. Anyone who does kind of question that is taken care of. You know, they're sent to the wild section <laughs> or, uh, you know, um, who knows? We don't really know, but we get the we get the feeling that anytime that anybody questions anything like that's not a bad thing. Like people say, don't question, don't ask questions, you know, all the time. Um, and then on top of that. Life is all about pleasure. Like if you want to keep a society from asking any questions you make it all about them and their pleasure and and the fact that they have everything taken care of they have every you know base instinct satisfied you push them towards every base instinct basically which is sex and drugs and anything that keeps their mind occupied beyond asking questions and this is i mean gosh we even kind of see that in um I was thinking how the same thing happens in Wally, you know, um, and then these people are in perpetual lockdown. They are there is no 
place other than a controlled environment which people can only get their information and the way in which something is supposed to work from the approved sections, from the approved propaganda outlets. You know, it's it's very mm-hmm. 1984 in that sense. You know, uh, shut up and drink your oily gin, basically, uh, and and uh, listen to Big Brother. Like that, that... I don't know about you guys, but a part of me was terrified watching this movie when we when I started to think about the implications of that. Yeah, I, it's definitely there. I, I like the fact that you referenced Wally, except I don't think Wally had a sexateria in it. It's been a while no, since it I did watched not. it. So, no, yeah, no, thank, was, thank God. No, that part it just was had not. Lazy no. oafs and chairs. Yeah, yes, I'll take the lazy yes. oafs and chairs next time. Okay, I'm good with that. That's, <laughs> Yeah, the sexateria was a really weird one, too, because it was like suddenly they were moving slowly. And I was like, why are we doing that? I don't know. They took Um, drugs when they walked in. Didn't you see that? Oh, I did. They walked through a cloud, (laughs) but I didn't understand why time itself slowed down. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe they ended up in Nexus. Maybe I'm looking for Sora in there. I don't know. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's um, it is it's. It's interesting because when you when you are young and, you know, th- this is a movie that emphasizes, you know, youth and then you get killed before you can get a chance to get old, basically. Uh, it's one of those things where when you are young, those are the only things you seem to be concerned about. So what's unfortunate is I think it's a practical necessity to make 30 the age that you die in this movie. But 21 actually makes more sense because you haven't quite grown up enough by that point sure, uh, to truly grasp, you know, especially if you're living in a society where you don't, never have to work or think or mm-hmm. you know, do anything before that age. Like it just it just works a little bit better. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's it's it is interesting because. As you go back and you watch the the dystopian sci-fi of the 1970s, and then we go into the 80s and the 90s, and we're like, oh, look at those histrionic drama queens in the 1970s. They thought everything was going to go so terribly. Ha, 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 ha. And then you sort of flash forward to today, and you're like, well, thematically, they were onto some points. I have to concede that. And it's it, it's a little disorienting because it's like, all of a sudden, those movies are like the crazy guy on the soapbox screaming, the end is nigh. Eventually, he's mm-hmm. going to be right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you start to worry about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least that you can draw some parallels to where you're going. Oh, maybe we should listen a little bit. <laughs> at least a little. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe a little. Yeah. But yeah, I felt the same way with it. You know, it basically is also kind of commentating... Um, or commenting on how cults begin. And I mean, that's something that just like personally in my life has always been something that really creeps me out is how people could be so brainwashed literally into believing all of this stuff and then being taken somewhere like that where you're sealed off from the outside world and you will end up doing anything that you never would have done before because someone has convinced you and not and told you not to question things. Um, and if you think about it too, like this time period, that's when some of these seriously awful cults we hear about now were starting. Um, 
and that creeps me out even more. So, you know, I just, I wanted to throw that in that I really got that vibe, especially the more that, you know, you were mentioning Matt, like it being separate from the rest of the world. Um, and that they only know what they've been told their whole lives. Um, that they've really undergone conditioning. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the thing that really, it does, you know, scare me, this idea of that this system is in control like the, the and and the system um has has no inclination for caring about people or um you know any any specific individual or any individuals really it's just about the overall system and it's about perpetuating the system you know so the only truth again is the system the only truth is what perpetuates the system and i think one of the things that really jumped out at me was the way in which then the reality distortion field is very strong with people are faced with the truth you know I, I, and i'm struck by the way that you know francis 7 responds to the world as it actually is outside of this crazy system and that he can't accept it. Like he can't, he has to create, his brain has to create some sort of uh, explanation for this that isn't the truth because he can't believe that what's outside of the system is the truth. And like, that, I mean, it's another place where I found myself just really surprised at how relevant the movie is with the way that it shows people being so willing to, when their worldview is challenged, will they be able to accept the truth or will they continue to live a lie or accept the lie because they they just can't get themselves there. And that, that, I mean, to me, again, just a great job here by the filmmakers. And this is where I think I would almost, I, I just would love for this to be redone by somebody to really dig into these, these thematic elements because I do think that the movie has such uh, a lot to say. So see, the thing is, I agree. The movie has a lot to say, but I think that if they ever remake or reboot this, which they will eventually, it's got to happen. Just the fact that run is in the title and there's a whole lot of running in it. Mm -hmm. We all know it's going to be JJ Abrams and it's going to be far more shallow than the 1970s version. So, <laughs> so you're saying everybody is just going to be running the whole time. It's, it's going to be a lot it, of sweat yeah, and a lot make, of running. Let's make peace with it. It's going to happen. Let's just prepare mm -hmm. ourselves for the inevitability at this point. We're not going to get like Christopher Nolan coming in and making Logan's run or uh, Denis Villeneuve and, you know, this big high art piece. It's three and a half hours long or anything like that it's going to be an hour and 55 minutes of people running and out of breath and then in the last 30 <laughs> seconds they're gonna be like maybe this is bad credits mm -hmm. so <laughs> which ironically for this movie being called logan's run it feels more like logan's slight jog <laughs> well they're not be... running at like full sprint or they don't seem you know extremely yeah. concerned that they're in danger <laughs> Well, to be fair, Michael York was 34 by this point, and um, 
uh, oh, I forget the actor's name who who played Francis, but a, a mainstay of character actor of the decades afterward. He was 39 by the time this film came out. So maybe it's just maybe this is why they were all killed by 30. They all lost the ability to run by the time. Maybe. They were yeah. 30 in this. In they this start world. slowing so. down. You got to take them out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're true. easier to hunt. That so way. true. <laughs> oh, my God. But oh, and goodness. the one other thing I just wanted to throw in there too that um I forgot to mention was I do like that it's also a commentary about um real problems that the world deals with all the time that we're still dealing with and that's the overpopulation and overuse of resources and how do you fix those problems or are they even fixable um and you know posing that to some people a utopian society is a solution to that but is that really even possible? Like, A, are those problems possible to fix? And then B, is a utopia even possible? Or is it just some idea we like to tell ourselves is possible? So I, I like that it seems to comment on that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it, I mean, is this a utopia? I think that's a great right, question. Yeah, that right? too. <laughs> you know, I think that's that's what we always in in all of those type all of these type of films. Like, what you end up with the the big question is: Is this really utopia? And I think you know, as we've talked about it, we would just say this is not utopia. This is this is more like dystopia, very much so. Um, and I I think that one of the I. You know, to call out slightly a detriment to the film is the fact that it never discusses um, any of the reasons for why this is the case, um, why we we have um, the world the way we do. You know, I feel like even just a quick, um, very short, like, talk over at the beginning, you know, as to why this is the world and the way it is would be fascinating to to give us some kind of context for why people are in this place. You know, um, I think that would be really helpful for the film. Well, why was the place built? How yep, was it exactly. built? When was it built? And the thing yeah. is before, before anybody jumps in and says, Oh, well lost to the mists of time, which things can be lost to the mists of time. Even a society like this would have some sort of mythos built up around it as to why it existed. There would be some sort of historical, historical record that they would reference mm -hmm. as this is the year the city was built and that is why it is good and that is why it exists you know you go all the mm -hmm. way back to rome they have a story of how rome was founded every place right. needs a founding story and so that would have at least been something they would have talked about or discussed in some you, you even if it's clumsy you can have some bit of dialogue Oh, Logan, they haven't asked anything like that since they founded the city in the shade of the blah, 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 you know, whatever you want to say. And um, it at least gives the audience a hint of that history. And I think that something that they wind up underplaying is the fact that it says earlier in the movie that they believe life outside the city is this unlivable wasteland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're in this verdant green the whole time. It really should have blown their minds way more when they encounter actual nature with right. all of this water and trees and sunlight it should have been like an absolute mind melting moment to encounter that stuff because this is the first time they've ever seen natural light for all that we know and mm -hmm. you know yeah they have they have ficus plants in the 
in 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 the in the food court where they have the shootout in the early part of the movie but um yeah you know like it's just it's again i i I think it's just a a product of not knowing what to do with the material so Mm -hmm. sure yeah 100 percent and you know one of the things that we haven't really touched on and i think is worth looking at is the cast um here michael york and Jenny Agutter, uh, Richard Jordan, uh, you know, those are our main cast members. And, and so, and obviously they're the ones to which we are watching this entire movie through as well. How do you feel, you know, about them as, as being the leads of this film? And they're the ones who are trying to get us to the point where we actually have some sort of connection with what is going on in this film. Uh, I think Richard Jordan as Francis does a great job. I believe him as the fanatically dedicated Sandman. Uh, I think Michael York is there and doing (laughs) the best he can with material that he's not necessarily comfortable with. And honestly, I think the standout of the three of them is, uh, is a gutter. I think that she's just really good in this role. Uh, I don't get any chemistry between her and York like at all. Yeah. But, it is what it is sort of thing, but I think she's great. And, and she is actually, um, you know, I, cause the, the, the first time I watched it and this time I was like, she's just, she just looks so familiar to me. Turns out she was a mainstay of 1980s television. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well I saw her on a ton of, mm-hmm. you know, guest appearances on shows and stuff like that. Uh, but also apparently she was in the Avengers and, uh, a couple of the MCU movies. She was part of the, world council or whatever according to her imdb page so that's like hey great you know that's sort of like full circle that she goes from logan's run to this you know quasi dystopian world ruling council in the Mm -hmm. uh in the mcu movies it's like oh yeah okay that she came home you know like it sort of fits so there you go but yeah i think she's the standout yeah i the one issue that I had with her was just, and maybe it's the chemistry issue that you're mentioning, John, but um, it seemed like all the times that she said, no, I want to be with you, that I didn't believe her. And I didn't know if it was bad direction, bad chemistry, or if she was not doing those scenes very well, but it just felt very dry when it should have been like a, you know, I yearn to be with you kind of thing. Um but I do think Michael York was good, um, and Richard Jordan as Francis Seven really stood out to me, especially um, because you can tell that he's playing his disbelief so well, especially in the final scenes when he follows them and they end up fighting, and then he dies. You know, it's like he even dies believing that he's still right, and mm-hmm. it just blows your mind because you're like, he's still cannot change his mind about this and and i like that they kind of explore that with um jessica as well of she gets more and more upset as um logan is telling her that the sanctuary is not actually real he's like you know basically saying he's saying what we're all thinking as an audience of haven't you noticed yet like there's all these clues saying that the sanctuary was never really there um but she can't accept that either she finally does but it takes a long time but uh, uh yeah i think the three the three of them did a really great job and i think that it helped the movie that they focused on a small number of main characters 
rather than it being a huge cast. I think, uh, you know, both of you have kind of nailed it really well um, in the fact that who's good and who's really not in the film. And, you know, I think one of the main detriments to the movie is the fact that you don't really buy the love story because, like you said, John, there isn't chemistry between these characters, which is really disappointing because you really need that to work, that these characters um, find a way to fall in love. You know, that they find their way to each other um, throughout the film and throughout their journey, right? And that just doesn't really happen in the movie. And it's it's kind of off-putting. I mean, you know, when they're in the water there together and, you know, she says yes finally to them, you know, having sex. And you're like, really? I thought, you I mean, you barely seem like you want to talk to the guy let alone like you know um do some stuff you know so Mm -hmm. it just it it doesn't really that's the part of the movie that doesn't work well enough and that's disappointing because you know i as we talked about i think the thematic stuff here is so strong so good and, and i just wish there was even more of it but you also need this love story to kind of jump off the screen because these characters have the chemistry to kind of pull it forward. You know, it's like if Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher had absolutely no chemistry together, mm-hmm. you know, that would ruin the Empire Strikes Back. And that's kind of where you end up here, as if that's happened. Well, and it rightfully, you know, along with what you're saying, Matt, I'm saying you're right, basically, that it comes across like he just wants to you know, have his way with her and that she keeps saying no. And it's like, well, that's not really fair. I mean, (laughs) anybody should have the right to say no. And it doesn't really feel like love on his end. Yeah, I I, I honestly think it's it really is just a a, it's because of the lack of chemistry. York isn't, you know, you can tell when two people are legitimately interested in each other on some level, when there is some sort of spark between them and there's no spark between these two at all. No. And so I I think, (laughs) you know, I'm saying lines that I'm supposed to say, and we're naked floating in the water. So it's like, yeah, okay. You know, and, and that's, that's the weirdest thing about it is the movie still works. Even if they don't wind up falling in love, might work better if they don't until the end when they've been through everything um you know at the very end sort of thing uh and this obsession with um that scene and the sexeteria are the only things that make this not a family friendly sort of movie you know like mm-hmm. it's bizarre because these that scene and, and the earlier one just feel wedged in there for the sake of making the adult audience happy i guess and it's like you could have you could have edited these things out and the movie still works perfectly fine and that's the you know the definition of the unnecessary element and um so yeah i i mean yeah i i just i just think it's a chemistry problem yeah. and i'm not going to fault the actors for it per se they should have found a way to deal with it and to adapt but this is 
this very much feels like just, okay, this is what's on the page. Let's get it shot. Let's get it done. Let's get out of here. Let's call it a day. Well, and I feel like, don't they do screen tests? I mean, did someone that is directing this movie or, you know, shooting it at some point not say, this doesn't feel right? Does anyone else feel this way? You know what I mean? Well, if the movie's in development hell for a while, sometimes I guess maybe you'll just go with what's good. And mm, given that there are script through. changes, well, you know, script changes that can happen during filming. Maybe some of these scenes are, you know, they're they're getting the dailies back and they're getting notes back. It's like, ah, we need a we need them to to actually fall in love at some point. Okay, write it real quick. Tomorrow morning we're going to go shoot it in this apparently algae filled body of water that mm-hmm. probably isn't healthy to swim around in. But but let's just shoot it. Let's just shoot it, you know, right. and, and get it out there. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I think actually that's probably what happened with some of these scenes is they sh- they wrote them on set because they were getting notes back after the dailies. And they said, OK, let's let, let's go out and insert this. Mm-hmm. Well, and apparently they even cut some more nudity from the movie already, because in the scene where they are in the um, the freezer with the robot. Uh, they were originally supposed to be posing naked for him to take photographs of them with the other frozen people. Hmm. That was actually kind of, okay. filmed, and kind they were told they to cut, cut it. it. Yeah, yeah, because it was too much that would nudity. Be awkward. Yeah, kind of glad they super cut that. Awkward. Kind of really uh, glad they cut. Yeah, that. I was like, that's what yeah yeah that's that's, that's not weird. right that's but you know the the mm. sexeteria needed to stay because the the, <laughs> the least likely place you would expect the escape route to be is inside the brothel that's a good that's a great it's point very actually a great point <laughs> i just i just and i just think we really need to I... title this episode sexeteria honestly <laughs> Oh, no. Get a uh, yes, you do. That is how you're going to get a lot of listens. You're going to get a lot of people to download this episode with the title I, Sexeteria. You know, I, I think, though, um, you know, it, it just as we talked a little bit, that, that is one of the places where, you know, it, sometimes in a movie, you know, nudity can have a purpose. And I do think that that was one of those scenes where, yeah, it's weird and and, and crazy and, and kind of awkward. But in some ways, it makes complete sense for this society to have this type of place, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this would be the type of place when we we're kind of talking about the idea of control. This is exactly what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about... This is the way in which you keep people, you know, um, under your thumb for the system. And counterpoint to that, and there's no way you're going to film this movie, but counterpoint to that, if all you're concerned about is pleasure and stuff like that, why are there any mores at all about where you have sex? Why wouldn't it just be happening out in the open left and right? You know, it, like, why would you have any any area where it would just be like, oh, that's where you go to do that? Like, it's just something you would do. It's just mm-hmm. be like, oh, look, they're over there in the corner doing. Oh, uh, yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I do think that in some ways. There are other movies where that kind of thing is happening in that. I mean, if you redid this movie, there, there's a possibility that you, you could, you know, 
see something more like that. So only if Lars von um, Trier does it. Well, that's that's true. So you're saying um, the answer was they need to put yeah. the ice scene back in. There need to be more nudity. I, uh, no, 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 no. That that I'm scene did, really did not need to be there. I'm in a awkward position here because yeah. I'm not advocating <laughs> <What> I, per se. <laughs> no, I'm just what yeah. I'm saying is that time. definitely did not need to be in there. Um, but yeah, there are. I I, I think when I as I was watching this movie, you know, that was one of the scenes where the nudity made sense for the thematic nature of the film. Sure. Whereas others, you know, obviously, you know, there are plenty of, of, of things that we watch, you know, and, and these days uh, nudity is not as big a deal anymore. They, in fact, there's a lot, lot less nudity in movies these days. Um, but this is something where I, I think you, you, they, they, they actually chose wisely on that one scene. I think it made sense for it to be there, which is strange to be able to say, but it it did make sense that we would have this um, there. So, um, you know, I, I mean, uh, there's probably other things we could talk about with the film, but I am really interested because, you know, I feel like we had some really interesting things to say about the movie. We had some, some criticisms of the film, but we also... Uh, there were some really interesting things to talk about throughout the movie. And so I am kind of on the edge of my seat as to where everybody's going to fall with the ratings here for Logan's run. So for me, I really, I kind of had to think about it more than I thought I would um, because I watched this on Voodoo. And when you're done watching a new movie on Voodoo, they ask you to rate it on a star scale out of five. So I was like, Oh, I guess I'm doing this already. Um, so really because of the themes and it's still being very applicable today, even though the film is dated, um, I give it a lot of forgiveness for the bad things. Um, but I still wouldn't say it's like one of my favorite movies, um, more just a like necessary viewing for a sci-fi fan to say, okay, I get the references now in the rest of culture too. Um, so I ended up giving it a three out of five um, sexaterias <laughs> because it still has some themes that make you think and make us have interesting conversations like this and talk about, you know, how it could apply to the world we live in now. So like I said, you know, aside from the other production issues we discussed, I thought that that was still a, a defending defendable thing uh i wind up a little harsher with it uh because i guess i contextualize it in a sense that if i were to have logan's run you say to me you got an evening you got to watch one of these movies and you got a logan's run or you have the omega man or you have soylent green or you have um planet of the apes strangely all three of the ones that come to mind are charlton heston movies so he was really king of this genre i guess I would go with any one of those three over Logan's run. I agree with you. You should watch it to get the cultural references that occur. Uh, I think that it winds up probably if I had watched it farther in the past, if I'd watched it in the nineties, I'd probably be even kinder to it. Uh, but I do think that it is a movie that is one of those ones where, and I hate to be getting to this sort of age, but I am at the age where 
my kids can watch something where I can say, oh, this is a really important movie of its day. And they look at it and they're just completely befuddled why anybody liked it. And I remember the same experience with my dad where he's like, oh, people love this movie when I was growing up. It's like people when you were growing up didn't have good taste, dad. Hate to break it to you. (laughs) So it's one of those things where um, I went up. I'm going to give it uh, two out of five poorly choreographed, very slow motion gunfights. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I there with Christy in the sense that I rewatching this movie, I think that I was just so struck by how many things I found that were more relevant than I thought that they would be that I would give this a three out of the five. And that that's obviously me rating like Christy for the thematic elements more than much else. Um because in and it and it's it's frustrating because even just with better chemistry between actors, this movie could have been a four, even with its age. And mm-hmm. plenty of movies these days uh, are like that. Um and that's disappointing. Uh, but I, I I I still stand by it. I think I really do. I do think that this movie has some really interesting stuff to say, and I think that it's worth revisiting. And and like you said, John, I do think that this movie is worth revisiting uh, just for, for, yeah, getting those references. And, um, And I, you know, I've heard thoughts of this movie being you know remade um you know for the longest time it was brian singer who was interested in that um but there are plenty yeah that's not going to happen obviously now but there are plenty of people i'm sure in hollywood that would be interested in remaking this and i think they absolutely should i think this movie is is rife for the for the taking in that sense i think this movie um it, with the right people involved, could be incredible. Uh, and so, please, somebody remake this. And, um, yeah. So, uh, after the ratings, of course, well, we instituted uh, not too long ago, I guess um, probably over a year ago now, uh, recommendations for people. And uh, so, Christy, so our guest, John Mills, has time to <laughs> be able to think of a recommendation Uh I, what would you like to recommend to everybody this week on the Six of Two Club? Yeah, so uh, actually, I I couldn't remember if I had already recommended this or not. So I'm sorry, forgive me if I have. But um, I was reminded since we just started season two that I needed to recommend people check out the show Wu Tang and American Saga on Hulu huh. because although the show is a drama. Um, it is based on some real events and um, has actually caused me to then go back and look up all the information on how the Wu-Tang Clan started and listen to more of their music. And it just has opened up this whole new side of hip hop for me um, in a great way and and has actually been really inspiring when initially I was worried that the show would maybe kind of be a downer talking about, you know, the tough life that people grew up in. Um, but it's been the opposite of that. It's shown that against literally probably all odds possible, these guys made something and they did something revolutionary. So I cannot recommend enough. Check out Wu-Tang and American Saga and learn more about Wu-Tang Clan. 
Hey, Wu Tang for life. Okay. Yes. Uh, that's uh I no, seriously, like uh I even had uh yeah. Riza actually appeared in Nobody. Uh the, oh, really? the uh Bob Odenkirk movie, which oh, uh cool. which Matt saw with me when he, he yeah, visited that was great. visited me uh several months ago. So, uh, yeah, the RZA is great. You, uh, anybody interested uh, should check out uh, his album, Bobby Digital, which is uh, pretty great. So, but yeah, um, I'm suspecting they probably also clean up ODB's life just a little bit for the uh, yeah. sake of dramatization. But um, I will actually go out on a limb here and say, because we're entering spooky season uh, every year or two-ish, I wind up rereading Dracula by Bram Stoker. I encourage everybody to read it at least once in their life. I think it is an absolutely magnificent book. It has been a mainstay and a crutch of mine for two decades at this point. Uh, More than two decades, actually. And I think it's a tremendous book. I think it's one of the best works of romantic literature out there. And uh, can't recommend it highly enough. So as we head into spooky season, please, if you haven't yet, or if you have and you want to revisit it, I encourage people to read Dracula by Bram Stoker. Nice. I have not, so I will. I encourage it. Well, um, this is interesting because I'm actually the one who is struggling for a recommendation. Um, But I know what I'm going to recommend. Because John and I have a project that is going to be dropping here this week on uh, Friday called Assembling Avengers. And we're going to be going back through the MCU, minus the hype, looking at each individual film and discussing its merits and how it holds up this test of time. I mean, we've been with the MCU now for, what, almost 20 years, so... I mean, it's been a long time, so we're going to have fun doing that. So I'm going to encourage you to go back and start with Phase 1 and hit up Iron Man. Uh, So you can revisit that with us on Assembling Avengers. And so without further ado, I want to say thank you so much to uh, everybody for joining us. Uh, Of course, um, John... Where can people find you if they'd like to catch up with you and uh, see what you've got going on Oh, beyond the 602 Club? Oh, you know, honestly, a piece of my heart's always in the 602 Club, but you can also find me as Kessel Junkie on your social network of choice. You can find me on Letterboxd. It's where I have the most fun on social media, although I, I do enjoy little story tidbits thrown out there on Twitter on occasion. Uh, and you can find me actually over on the Nerd Party as part of two shows. One, I am co-hosting a show called House Lights, which, Matt, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, where we look at the works of directors uh, divided by decade, divided by entire career, or one per decade, you know, whatever strikes our fancy uh, at the time, really. And co-hosting a show called Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast that I co-host with you, Matt. But Chrissy, where can people find you out there in the wilds of the internet? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And you can also find me when I am not here with Matt. I do a show called Sabers and Spells with my friends Amanda and Teresa, which is on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network Skynet. And we've been on a little bit of a break because Amanda got married and then just went on her honeymoon at Disney World. Um, But now we're going to be diving back into geeky stuff we don't usually get to cover. So I hope you'll check that out at Sabers and Spells everywhere, too. 
Awesome. Um, and uh, of course, you could find me all over the place. Matt Rushing Zero Two uh, is um, the main place you could find me on social media platforms. So just uh, look under that moniker, and you will find me. I'm, I'm pretty much on all the main places that uh, you'd want to haunt. Uh, you know, I don't know why you'd haunt social media <laughs> these days, but if you do, that's the place to find me. Uh, you can also uh, find me here on the network doing a bunch of shows. Um, not only the 602 Club, um, but you can also find me with Snyder Cuts as well as Assembling Avengers here in the 602 Club feed with John Mills. Uh, and uh, you can also find me doing The Orb as well as Literary Treks and Warp 5. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. And Warp 5, Chris Jones and I are re-walking through every single episode of Star Trek Enterprise. We celebrate its 20th anniversary, so that's a lot of fun. That's just started, so please hope you'll check that out. Uh, And then over on the Nerd Party Network, not only do I do aggressive negotiations with the great John Mills, but I also do did Owl Post with Drea Kaufman, and we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. So if you like Harry Potter, I hope that you will check that out. But um, yeah, uh, I think that's about all we've got for you. And uh, Yeah, so actually, that's not quite all we've got, Matt. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, what? Some friends and I got together and put something together for you, so why don't you check that out real quick? You've got mail. Hi, it's Brandy Jackala, and a little bird by the name of Christy told me that you guys are having your 350th episode. That is really, really impressive. But what's even more impressive to me is that, Matt, you have been there for the entire time. Since episode one. Some people may say, oh yeah, 350 episodes and been there for them all. That's quite an achievement. I mean, it's, I can't even think of another podcast that has had at least one host be the same for 350 episodes. That's massive. The amount of work and dedication that you put into that is astonishing. The commitment is magnificent. And I just wanted to say congratulations. You are really killing it. So thanks. It's been fun saying hi to you again. It's been fun. My past appearances on the 602 Club really enjoyed it. And uh, take care. Matt and everybody at the 602 Club, congratulations on 350 episodes. That is no small feat. And I'm glad to have been a part of it. All of our great conversations about Bond and everything else, but especially Bond, that holds a near and dear place in my heart. 350 is a lot to look back on. That's a lot of great conversations, a lot of prep work, a lot of editing, a lot of scheduling. There's a lot of hanging out at the 602 Club, and uh, let me just say that when the bar tab comes due, I'm not going to pay it. All right, good night, everybody. Hey, Matt, it's Nick. Um, well, happy anniversary, first of all. 350, and you don't look a day over 177. One, what can I say? Um, you know... It's an accomplishment for so many reasons. It's a work of passion, a labor of love that you've put into the 602 Club since day one. 
and it's showed um, since day one, but it's so much more. And I think that's really what you should be the most proud of on a day like today. It's such a milestone. I just look at my example and our example, the 602 Club, is how you and I became friends. Um, the 602 Club is something which uh, was almost a daily presence in my life at a time when I went through sort of a valley, as we all go through. And it helped me to have that presence um, on a daily basis, which you provided. Um, it's something which I was fortunate enough to have a voice in, and many others have, to a degree or another. And um, you have contributed to the fabric of our culture, this subculture of film fans, nerds, um pop culture aficionados, whatever you want to call us, geeks, um, to have a voice and to be able to mature and express ourselves both in terms of sheer passion and also uh, creatively, constructively. And so I think these are all the things you really uh, need to take stock of and be happy and proud about on a day like today because really when it comes to 602 that comes all from you uh and and i'm really proud to have been part of it to have become your friend um thanks to the 602 club to have been a listener and i look forward to many many more um episodes and years so here's to your 350th and to another 700 and more. May the force be with you, my friend. Um, and congratulations on such a big milestone. Holy free holies, Matthew. 350 episodes of the 602 Club. That is quite an accomplishment. I am so excited for you to reach this milestone, and I'm so excited to see the next 350 episodes that you put out. It's always a pleasure. Congratulations. Thank you so much for sharing so much with all of us. Hey, Matt, it's Bruce. I just want to congratulate you on your 350th episode of The 602 Club. And of course, I know you've recorded more than 350 episodes because you have all the supplementals. But I want to thank you for getting me involved in podcasting. It was actually episode number 31 of the 602 Club. We talked about Tomorrowland. That was my first podcast ever. You told me what microphone to buy and the rest is history. And we've continued to podcast on this show, Literary Tracks, Star Wars Report. I'm sure I'm missing something. But also a shout out to Christy for putting this together and for both of you for being great friends. Thanks a lot. And congrats. Oh, gosh. That's... <laughs> You did not have to do that. That's <laughs> that's way too nice. I I really appreciate that though. That it actually does mean a lot. Um so thank you for doing that, Chrissy. That's really awesome. I I was just the linchpin that gathered everybody together. I wanted to make sure that everyone who has really, you know, been around with you from 602 Club from early on got to say thank you for all that you've done to make this what it is and to get to 350 episodes. Um, and then I did want to throw in too, just, uh, when I started on this show, 
Um, I don't know if you remember, but it was actually way back on episode 113. Wow. Talking about amazing. passengers with you and Richard. Oh, yes. Yes. And then my first Bond episode was for my favorite Bond movie, Diamonds Are Forever, on episode 116 with you and John Champion. And I remember Man. vividly, you told me before I came on that it was a trial run because you were very protective of those episodes in particular. You got to know your Bond. Uh, and I just, man... I mean, one thank you for uh, thank you to uh, to everybody who who wrote in. I especially think of you know like with Bruce Gibson, you know that's that we met each other because of podcasting as well. Um, John and I both uh, became great friends with Nick Anastasio because of this show, um, and uh, you know, of course, you, Christy, uh, I met because of podcasting and social media. You know, so like mm -hmm. so many good things have come to me. Um, and, um, gosh, you're making me cry. So <laughs> I really appreciate, um, both of you. And, uh, you know, it means so much to me to get to sit down with friends and just talk through, um, things like this, um, you know, goofy things and serious things and, and everything in between, you know, it's like 42, uh, uh, life, the universe and everything in between. And so I really appreciate it. And I guess all I can say is. Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 